Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another episode of Driving the Deal. My name is Brian Fortune, and with me, as always, is a partner in crime at McDermott, Will & Emery, Chris Whirling, partner in the Chicago office. And our special guests this week include Holly Stokes, senior analyst with Farragut Square Group out of our Washington, D.C. office, and Brian Stempson, partner in the Washington office of McDermott, Will & Emery. We're always grateful to have him. Welcome aboard, Brian. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks, Brian. It's good to be back again. Just to remind our audience, my name is Chris Whirling. I'm a partner and co-head of the private equity group at McDermott, Will & Emery, and uh, concentrate my practice in helping investors make the investments in broad array of different healthcare subsectors. Last week, we were excited to hold our first digital health conference in New York. It was very well received, attended by a huge number of growing companies, as well as a broad array of investors. One of the things I thought was very interesting was that the investor base that attended included you know, venture capital and early stage and seed investors, all the way up to some of the largest global investors who are all very focused on the changes that digital technology are bringing to healthcare. I'd say some of the focus was on how investors can make investments that solve some of the interoperability issues that are emerging as more and more telehealth solutions come out to market. Uh, it's becoming more and more fragmented and interoperability is becoming a focus of the government as well as the investors looking to, to solve those problems. We also spent time talking about what consumers are gonna do with digital solutions following the pandemic and what are some of the next steps now that life begins to return to normal a bit. And I think that's very relevant to uh, the topic today, uh, the winding down of the public health emergency. One area we know that that is gonna have a direct impact on is a variety of reimbursement and other rule changes having to do with digital driven counters with providers. So. I think it's an interesting topic today and look forward to hearing what the Bryans have to say about it. All right. This week on Driving the Deal, we'll be talking about unwinding the public health emergency. So for those in the audience, I think you'll all remember that uh, a couple of years ago, there was this uh, thing called a pandemic. And in response to it, the uh, administration declared a public health emergency. Congress also got involved as well as the executive branch, and they extended a number of flexibilities across the healthcare universe and new temporary authorities that were beneficial in many subsectors for the duration of public health emergency. Now, however, we're looking at a landscape where the PHE may end sometime on the near-term horizon. Horizon. And today we're going to be breaking down a lot of those different authorities that are beneficial to different areas and our view on whether some of them may continue, how they might continue, or whether they're going to end and what that might mean. So why don't we just kick off with the, the main question. President Biden went ahead and sent out a letter from the administration recently to kind of the healthcare provider landscape basically telling them to prepare for the end of the PHE without any suggestion or commitment to a firm date. But Brian, what did you make of that letter? And, and does it mean that 
we're going to see it end very, very soon, or do we expect an extension or two? I think the conventional wisdom um, that I'm hearing is that the, the most most recent extension of the PHE may be the last one, or, or, or there may be one more. I'm actually really skeptical of that because it took a lot to build up the current infrastructure bonding to the COVID pandemic. And if you, you just pulled down the public health emergency quickly, I think there would be a lot of unintended consequences that would result from it, particularly with respect to some of the waivers that have really an engine for change in healthcare and that people have now adjusted to. So I'm a bit of a contrarian on this. I think that it's more likely that the PHE is going to continue in some form through the end of the year or maybe even till next year. Right. Now, the current PHE ends when again? So the the current extension of the PHE ends in mid-July. That's right. And, you know, there's a, a fair amount of speculation around here that they might renew it again until October 1st, I believe. And, and then they, you know, as, as you had speculated, they, they might perhaps, you know, renew it one more time after that. That seems more likely to me than all of this ending in July. And I think that an extension that runs into next year is just as plausible as multiple extensions running through the end of this year. And because you've got so much that's been built up over time, it's like a Jenga tower. <laughs> if you just start pulling Jenga pieces out, the tower is going to collapse. You got to do it slowly and carefully and methodically to prevent things from going sideways. So Medicare eligibility was expanded in the public health emergency. Um, kind of curious about Medicaid side of things. Can you go into more detail on some of the Medicaid eligibility issues associated with the end of the PHE? So um, the primary thing that will go away is something called the Section 1135 waiver, and that's tied to the PHE and then the president's declaration of a, a general emergency. If the PHE goes away or the general emergency goes away, then the 1135 waiver goes away. And the 1135 waiver is what relaxed all of the programmatic requirements for Medicare and Medicaid. And some of those have been extended by Congress beyond the 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 end of the PHE, like the telehealth flexibilities have been set by Congress to end a few months after the PHE ends. But you've got a host of other things that, that are tied directly to the PHE through that waiver that would go away. And then you have a lot of things that, um, that the department has done in response to the PHE that are not conditioned on it, like exercises of enforcement discretion by CMS and OCR or operational changes by CMS and OCR that would cease to have a reason to exist once the PHE goes away. In addition to the 1135 waiver, you'd have a lot of operation level changes at HHS that would impact providers. So thinking about some of the teleflexibilities that have been granted, you know, during the pandemic, what does the end of the PHE mean for those? Is there stability going forward? Are they set to expire? Can you give us an outlook of what that'll look like? Well, the flexibilities for telehealth were tied directly to the the PHE through the the waiver that secretaries of HHS have kept in place. And then Congress came back you know, this year and said that once the PHE goes away, the, the telehealth flexibilities will remain in place for a finite period of time afterwards. So unless there's more congressional action, the telehealth flexibilities that everybody has come to know and love during the pandemic are eventually going to go away for Medicare. And I think there's a there's going to be a lot of pressure on Congress to 
address that issue because people seem to have become accustomed to telehealth and really like it. It seems it just seems unlikely to me that that Congress would let those totally lapse even a short time after the PHE. So one of the teleflexibilities that is happening right now with the pandemic and the PHE is that Medicare is reimbursing at the same rate, whether it's a service is furnished by telehealth or in person. Do you expect that reimbursement parity to go forward, even if we have this coverage going forward? That makes sense to me. You know, the, the patient doesn't feel the payment changes. They just feel the, the changes, if any, in coverage. So if they maintain coverage but change payment, then they have a political solution to the problem. So I, I could definitely see that as a, an outcome here. So how do you expect the utilization of telehealth with regard to behavioral health services to go forward after the PHE expires? Yeah, behavioral health is, is, um, it's, been, it's been the focus for telehealth. Um, during the pandemic, I know t- telehealth has just blown up in in every respect, but it's always been the the core, and I would expect that to continue as well. So, what do you think CMS as an agency is going to be focused on the most as the PHENs? What I understand the focus uh, to be on at CMS is enrollment. <laughs> And there, there has not been uh, eligibility checks during the pandemic uh, due in, in part to some of these regulatory flexibilities and changes that have occurred. And with the pandemic winding down, CMS has put out guidance to the states about the changes that are expected to occur on eligibility. And that's something that that I know a lot of investors and companies are watching because it impacts the number of patients who have Medicaid coverage and thus the reimbursement to the providers. And CMS is, is in its guidance, suggested that, that it occur, that the reintroduction of checks for eligibility occur in a way that is phased and spaced out so that um, there's a a level transition and there's not a sharp turn for the beneficiaries. And the states have the autonomy to implement those changes the way they see fit to a point. And I think everybody's watching that process right now, but uh, there's, it's, it's kind of a black box because it's driven by the states and the states are still deliberating what to do. I think that's gonna be one of the big focuses in the next six to 12 months. All right, Brian, I'm, I'm warning you, we're now getting into the uh, the dangerous realm of uh, acronyms, SUE. There's so many things that are related with the PHE. One of them is the PREP Act. Brian, one question I had was whether the PREP Act declarations will remain in place after the end of the public health emergency, and how do you expect them to evolve from here? Uh, it's a great question and an interesting one. The The PREP Act was passed back during the Bush administration, and it was in response to a lot of the things from a bioterrorism perspective that were on folks' minds. And the PREP Act enables the secretary of HHS to issue a declaration that grants immunity from civil liability, except in certain limited circumstances, for companies that are using or making 
covered countermeasures, and covered countermeasures would be things like PPE or vaccine. And there's a long history of the HHS secretary issuing these declarations in response to pandemics or outbreaks of disease and, and then amending them over time. And one example of that is Ebola. Another example is H1N1. There's still H1N1 PrEP Act declarations that are live and have just been amended over time that grant companies involved covered countermeasures for H1N1 immunity. You just never hear about it. And I would expect the COVID declarations to go the same way. Uh, I'm sure that they'll be amended at some point and tailored to the changing circumstances, um, but I would still still expect them to, to remain and provide liability protection to private sector that's involved in covered countermeasures. And it's it's a little um, murky what those amendments will look like in part because there's been a lot of litigation around the, the impact that they have. And the courts, for better or for worse, have, have looked at the PREP Act and said that the immunity protections are not nearly as broad as the government thinks they are. So there's been a narrowing of what the PREP Act can do in some jurisdictions. Regardless, I think the declarations will still remain in some way, shape, or form, and we'll see that play out in the next six to 18 months. It's very helpful. You know, also along with that, what we saw was a lot of uh, EUAs or emergency use authorizations uh, at the FDA, particularly for, you know, both uh, some of the vaccines that came to market and then uh, different therapeutics. What do you think the FDA will do with the emergency use authorizations after conclusion of the public health emergency? It's a great question, too. Um, the EUA authority is not conditioned on the existence of a PHE. And so while there's some relationship conceptually between the two, you can have an EUA without actually having a PHE. Here, the Secretary of HHS issued an EUA declaration that enabled the FDA commissioner to issue EUAs based on the PHE, but, but the department through the secretary and the FDA commissioner could always modify what's on the books to enable EUAs to stand after the end of the PHE. And EUAs are supposed to be temporary. They're not supposed to go on forever. It's possible that that we could see some modifications to preserve the existing EUAs. There's already been some guidance that FDA has put out related to medical devices that suggests that FDA is not going to extend EUAs for, for those products and is expecting those products to go through some type of approval process for the long term and is expecting manufacturers to have processes in place for dealing with the contingency of long-term approval and not being received. But I think vaccines could potentially uh, be treated differently, perhaps other products as well. We'll just have to, to see on that one. Well, thank you for that. I think Congress is going to have to step in on, on a lot of stuff if there's a desire for it to continue, because everything that came out of the 1135 waiver was grounded in the PHE. There was only a limited amount of things that the agency could do on telehealth, for example, um, without further congressional action. Statutory authority on telehealth was just not broad enough. Uh, absent the, the PHE and the waiver authority to do the kinds of things that we've seen done during the pandemic. I think that's going to be largely the case for a lot of this going forward. The waiver power is just broad and really potent. Um, I could see you know, maybe some modification of the PHE that is uh, something less than flipping off the light switch. You, know, you could 
you could issue a PHE that's cabin to a geographic area. You can issue PHEs that are more narrowly tailored than the one that we have now. Whether that's politically tenable is another question. There are certainly pros and cons to doing that, and, and the cons may well outweigh the pros politically. But from a purely legal perspective, you know, we, we see public health emergencies declared for disaster areas all the time, and many of those PHEs are still on the books, and they're confined to the areas that are affected by the hurricane or the wildfires. And we've also seen an opioids public health emergency that stayed on the books since the early days of the Trump administration. While opioids are a significant issue that it's on everybody's mind, you'd never you know, really think about the public health emergency unless you had a reason to. So I, I think there are, there are ways that the, the secretary could keep a PHE on the books and maintain a lot of those flexibilities. Yeah, but short of that, I think it's you're looking at congressional action. Yeah, that's right. Definitely Congress has a lot of bridges they have to cross as we head into the end of the year. And that's a wrap of another great episode of Driving the Deal. I want to thank our special guests, Holly Stokes and uh, Brian Stimson, for walking us through these issues today. Join Chris and I again soon as we will be uh, tackling a number of additional topics, starting with, with antitrust, attenuation funds. Uh, and Holly and I will also delve into the physician services, specialty landscape again, uh, with a look at physical therapy, and uh, eating disorders uh, in the behavioral landscape. So have a great week, and we'll all talk again soon. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us today. If you would like additional information about McDermott's private equity practice or how we help investors in the healthcare services space, check out our website at pe.mwe.com. If you ever have any questions, you can, of course, reach me directly at kwerling, W-E-R-L-I-N-G, this material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2022, McDermott, Will & Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication, without the prior written consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.